okay, there <laughs> we are. Just had there to, we are. Just had to. Yeah, there he is. There's the man we know and love. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> Can you belch on command? It's like the, the part of the intro oh, of every episode. Oh, wouldn't that be lovely? There was uh, someone to camp with who could do the Old Testament. She could like drink coke along and. Really? <laughs> it was really kind of amazing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the epic task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. Because, of course, epic. I see what you did there. Yeah, don't you? (laughs) My name is Tony Witt, and today we have an equally epic three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's none other than the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. I'm back. Hello. Hello. Yes, and finally, we have our novice fan who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch-Safried. Hello, Allison. Happy Oktoberfest. Yes. yes. Two of us are drinking Oktoberfest beers. Cheers to that. I'm having a whiskey sour. In fact, I'm going to have a little bit of it right now. Why are we not getting promotional liquor money for this show? I don't know. You know, we we really should. Anyone interested in in sponsoring us? Speaking of which, before we get to talking about the book, thank you, Dalton. I see what you did there. Mm -hmm. Please remember our new Patreon page. Available at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. <laughs> Heaven forfend a Target book. No, no Target books. No, none. None whatsoever. You're not getting a Target book. You had your chance. Though you, you blew beg it. with your life, you will not yes. receive one. <laughs> you had your chance. You blew it. Out of sight, out of mind. Yes, as a gift. For supporting us. That's that's parenthetical. That's all parenthetical. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. Mm-hmm. We continue the run of Hartnell stories novelized in the 80s to discuss Donald Cotton's novelization of his script for the 20th Doctor Who story, The Mythmakers. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who, The Mythmakers, adapted by Donald Cotton from a script that aired from 10, 1665 to 11665, published by Target Books in September 1985. As of this recording in October of 2017, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged BBC audiobook, 141 pages. This book is as old as me. Oh, dear. You sweet, innocent child. <laughs> well, aren't we all compared to... Uh, you know, I'm going to stop now. Well, you'd better because I'm going to remind <laughs> listeners in a week's time it's Allison Fitch Safried's birthday as well. Indeed. Happy birthday mm-hmm. to you. you. We don't have cake tonight. I because live I in a shoe. I smell this... like a monkey and I look like one too. <laughs> 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 the other way I think it's the other way around, actually. But yeah, that's fine. We'll, we'll put a, we'll put a we'll put a picture of Allison up on the Facebook page and you'll see just how monkeyish we're talking. Looks correct. I think it's actionable. <laughs> yeah, put a probably picture so. of him on the Facebook page. But anyway, um. 
how is this our 19th episode, and yet it's the show's 20th story, you might be asking. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah, I put a little heart in the last. Mm-hmm. Those with exceptionally sharp hearing and the ability to slow down time and, you know, audio recordings, may have noticed a discrepancy in those fast facts from last time. There's a gap of a single week. As we may have mentioned last time, the week of October 9th, 1965, not that long ago now, in fact. Oh, today is October 9th, 1965. Oh, so, in 1965, today. So 52 years ago? Uh-huh. Oh my God, it is. I didn't even notice that when I was typing up the notes. It's fitting that the first page of this book deals with the with Homer's shock that he is still alive at this advanced age. Yes. yes. Because that's the sensation we all now have. Yeah, well, you, more, <laughs> some more than others. Anyway, <laughs> the week of October 9th, 1965, 52 years ago tonight, listeners, saw the broadcast of the only completely doctorless Doctor Who story to date, the one-episode Mission to the Unknown, which served as an appetizer, an hors d'oeuvre, if you will, to the upcoming 12-part Daleks Master Plan. May we call it an aperitif? An aperitif, indeed. <laughs> aperitif. Whatever that Monty Python thing is that they do. And that would follow the Mythmakers. So we're doing it in this order for a couple of reasons. One, we're, you and I will be discussing the two-volume Daleks Master Plan novelization live at Chicago TARDIS, the Midwest's best and only Doctor Who convention. Over Thanksgiving weekend, we'll be joined by uh, Trey Corte, who will be working at the con that work weekend as well. And boy, will he be working it. <laughs> yes. And that one part of the story is actually part of that novelization. That one part episode is part of that novelization. Uh, okay. So it doesn't make any sense. Entirely. Yeah. It makes no sense for us to do this. You'll come back to it. I yeah, we'll the book would make no sense and we have that to look forward to. Well, exactly. Yeah. And since Vicky leaves at the end of this story and is not in the next one, it only makes good sense. If it's a surprise to you that Vicky left at the end of the story, you're kind of in the same boat as the actress who played her. Uh, Maureen O'Brien came back from that one-week vacation and was surprised to hear that she'd been written out of the series without being consulted. Now, you said that she was really unhappy with the previous story, With Galaxy 4. But Mm -hmm. she didn't quit. She was fired? Something like that. that's just it. There are multiple sources that say different things. Some say she was fired. Some say her contract was up already. Some say she didn't know that her contract was being stopped early. So, okay. yeah, needless to say, this came as a surprise to her. I do know it was a surprise because it also makes sense of why the end of the story doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for Vicky to just stay and, you know, ancient. Reverend what do you mean she was in love? Well, yeah, sure she was. Having previously <laughs> lost a companion to romance with David Cameron, I was just afraid she was going to run off with Theresa May. Tell <laughs> 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 the ancient guys it better. Would, it would have been the next <laughs> one, wouldn't it? You're right. So, yeah, uh, presumably because of whatever comments she made during the filming of Galaxy 4, she got let go. Seriously, like that is that that's the dominant theory. Yeah, she was, but weren't there a lot of people unhappy with that one? Oh yeah, but she's Everybody the only one loves. who <clears throat> gets the pink. Wow. Yes, and you're wow. you're putting your finger right on the problem. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By contrast, <laughs> actually, by contrast, the uh, one person that really enjoyed making this story was Peter Purvis, who says it is his favorite story. So go figure. He didn't like Galaxy Four. 
either, but for different reasons. Nor was this episode a happy time for Hartnell. And in fact, this is just sad. He was not only struck and injured by a camera during the filming of the first episode and got a bruise on his shoulder. He also lost his Aunt Bessie, who was the woman who essentially raised him during his very difficult childhood. Mm -hmm. And uh, to make matters worse, his schedule wouldn't allow him to attend her funeral. Oh, He could not be let go to attend her funeral. So he was described as being extremely difficult during production, refusing to speak to two of the main guest actors and calling the director a fool to his face during filming. Um, He was also starting to feel the effect of his arterial sclerosis at this point. It was making it difficult for him to remember his lines. And he also felt his role was being diminished in the stories, particularly this one. He feels Mm. like the Doctor doesn't have a lot to do in this uh, script. Mm. It's long been rumored that he refused to work with Max Adrian, who played um, uh, Priam, because Adrian was both Jewish and gay. Here's the thing, though. I know. Wow, that was not what I was hoping to hear tonight. Yeah, well, Hartnell, uh, fans have always known this about Hartnell. Hartnell was deeply racist. He was very much a product of his time. Mm-hmm. However... How, how very undoctor-like of him. I, yeah, exactly, isn't it? I mean, these days you'd never... Yeah, if ever you heard even a smidgen of an actor having had a racist past or what have you, they'd never be cast. Right. But at the time, People yeah. keep giving Mel Gibson money, but... That's yeah, precisely. Well, here's the thing. There are a couple things that make that theory wrong. For one thing, they have no scenes together in the story. There yeah. wouldn't have been any call for them to really have any interaction. And... Hartnell's granddaughter in her biography of him says neither of those factors would have caused her grandfather to behave so unprofessionally. Mm. In fact, I think he she worked with Max Adrian before. So, yeah, mm. no. Hartnell, <laughs> I know this sounds terrible to say, but Hartnell had many <clears throat> Jewish friends, so... Some of his best friends. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. it's not unknown in Britain. Hi, this is unusual for me, but I wanted to break in with just a little more information about that. Uh, According to Jessica Carney's biography of William Hartnell, Hartnell had just come back from the seasonal break, which was about six weeks that year, and it was difficult for him because he had just come back from having a really bad cold for about a week. And he was greeted with the news that Maureen O'Brien was to be written out of the series at the end of the story. And he was extremely fond of her, so this is the first time he was hearing this, He was upset by the fact that he had a new producer to deal with in John Wiles. And not only did he have Max Adrian to deal with, but Francis DeWolf, both of whom were larger-than-life personalities. And apparently, Maureen O'Brien looked up to Max Adrian and had long conversations with him during the production of that story and hung on his every word. And she remembers noticing that Bill was jealous of that interaction So that's part of the reason why he was so difficult to deal with during the filming of that story. Not necessarily anti-Semitism, because he was very fond of Verity Lambert and Carol Ann Ford, both of whom were Jewish. And not necessarily xenophobic, because he was very fond of Weris Hussein, his first director. So that's a little more information for you listeners at home. And I'll tell our panelists next time. Or maybe I won't. (laughs) And so nobody enjoyed making this story much either, even though it's Peter Burns' favorite. And it's a fan favorite, too. 
We have Donald Cotton to thank for that. Thanks, Donald. Yes, thank I you, know, Donald. R.I.P. But yep, we, did he write the episode? He did. Okay. Yep. Uh, we discussed Cotton way back in episode twelve when we were talking about the Romans, mm-hmm. but we didn't go into a lot of detail about him on that occasion, especially as he was adapting someone else's script. And I thought some people complained that he adapted it to an uh, almost entirely different story that yes. was better than the original. A better story, but than significantly the more entertaining. Yeah, I think yes. the late Dennis Spooner probably would have enjoyed the uh, novelization, but. Uh, Cotton was born on April 26, 1928, and began writing for the BBC both on television and in radio in the late 50s, doing comedic scripts based on Greek mythology for the BBC third program, apparently mixing history and comedy was something he excelled at. In addition to this story, he also contributed to the Gunfighters, which we will will be discussing in January. Not as, uh, that one is not as popular, though the novelization is just, yeah. I, I don't want to give anything away. <laughs> that good or that bad? It's that good. Oh, okay. It's, it's this level. Okay. He submitted a further storyline for the uh, second Doctor called The Herdsman of Aquarius, which would have explained the Loch Ness Monster, which the show ended up doing in the 70s anyway. That was rejected. He adapted both of his scripts plus Spooners in the 1980s. These are often considered the best of the Hartnell books for obvious reasons. And he died in 1999. All right, let's read the blurb, shall we? Blurb away. The blurb. Long, long ago, on the great plains of Asia Minor, two mighty armies faced each other in mortal combat. Sorry, mm-hmm. I had to. It's like Cartman with the Sail Away song. I have to keep doing it to get it out of my head. <laughs> yeah. The armies were the Greeks and the Trojans, and the prize they were fighting for was Helen, the most beautiful woman in the world. Well, they're not sitting next to Alison Fitch Safran, so there you go. <laughs> oh, flattery gets you nowhere. I try. To the Greeks, it seemed that the city of Troy was impregnable, and only a miracle could bring them success. And then help comes to them in a most unexpected way. As a strange blue box materializes close to their camp, hmm, camp is the right word for it, bringing with it the doctors Stephen and Vicky, who soon find themselves caught up in the irreversible tide of history and legend. I'm going to pass the book around for you. Did she know she was being fired when she got the script, or has she already started filming it? I have a feeling that she probably got the script. The thing like, is, did they get so, the whole story at one time? Or just I don't one think they did. I don't think they did. In fact, I, I need to... In fact, we have... <laughs> here's the nice thing about SoundCloud. We've been getting comments on SoundCloud, which is great. Fantastic. On the flip side, they've been correcting our factual errors. Uh, and by our factual errors, I mean mine. Um, so I'm sure that one of our two... Get ready for some competition. I'm about to make a lot of factual errors tonight. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure that one of them will let us know. I think they only got the script each week, which means that she would not have known about her departure until she started filming Mm. episode four, the rehearsals for it, which took the week before the um, recording. Mm. Because they recorded on, um, I hope I'm getting this right, on Saturday nights. They would get the scripts. Yeah, I think that's it. They would do location filming on the Sunday before. They'd get the full script on the Monday. They'd start rehearsals Tuesday through Thursday. They'd do camera rehearsals on Friday. They'd record the episode on Saturday night. 
and then oh. the whole process would repeat. It's like a Saturday Night Live level yeah. punishing schedule. Yeah, they only do a few episodes a year. Exactly. And you can see why, one, Hartnell, it's amazing he lasted as long as he did. How old was he by this time? He was in his mid-50s. Really? Yeah. He did not moisturize. Okay. No, he did not. Uh-huh. And he was a heavy drinker as well. Mm-hmm. And that contributed to the health problems, yeah. plus the arteriosclerosis, which I think had not been diagnosed at that mm-hmm. point. Troughton, when he took on the role, actually said, you know, this schedule is shit. Can we please <laughs> do something about it? And they said, you know, that's a good idea. Let's. <laughs> that's we'll... all it took? Yeah, that's <laughs> all it took. Unfortunately, by uh, they didn't get around to changing it until Troughton left. So Pertwee was the first recipient of mm. that new schedule, which they needed because they were filming in color. So there were new technical problems oh. and they needed the extra time. Okay. So you go from a season that is 48 episodes, mm-hmm. like this season. Which seems insane. It is. Drama. Oh yeah, to 26 mm. by the time you get to uh, Pertwee. Which, by modern standards, is still a long season. It's a very long season. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of which, I found out today... Modern, as if this were ancient times. Mm-hmm. By current standards, well, I should say. Yeah. Speaking of which, I found out just today that Jodie Whittaker's new season is only going to be 10 episodes, not 12. But the episodes are going to be 60 minutes long. Oh, interesting. Nice. So we get more mm. story, but we're getting fewer. I like that idea. I do, too. I think that's just brilliant. And I hope it, uh, now that I'm deep into Broadchurch, balls deep into Broadchurch, I hope that level of writing continues. <laughs> Speaking of levels of writing, first impressions of the Mythmakers. What did you think? I love having Homer be a character telling the story. Okay. And how he is like an observer. Um, it lo- got a little tedious at times being like, and I went here and then I had to run back over here. To- <laughs> but I enjoyed it. I thought it, it, it was kind of funny at times. Um, some of the things that happened to him. Right. Um, but I feel like it worked. Okay. Um, yeah. I am, for better or for worse, exactly the center of the target audience for his brand of goofy humor. So <laughs> I really enjoy the Romans a lot, and I really enjoy this one as well, which is the way it makes the occasional, you know, reference to stupid, vapid ladies all the more a slap in the face, because he is oh, yeah. by far my favorite of the authors that we've read, that it, it is dispiriting towards the end of the book to be reminded that he doesn't really think I'm a human, but what can you do? Yeah. Um, but I, I really enjoyed his self-conscious humor. Not self-conscious, but uh, meta-humor as meta-humor. well. He talks about how um, you know anyone who has a good classical uh, education is always wanting to, to show off that they have that. <laughs> and he has, you know, Paris showing off that he knows about things that actually haven't happened yet in this narrative. Oh, yeah, the Cyclops, yeah. I know about that, and that won't happen for a few years, etc. Exactly. That um, I'm just a sucker for his style. I love it. Me too. And I I know exactly what you mean, because there are those references early on to Achilles' sexuality. Mm. And it's like, oh, seriously? And he almost has it, because there he every character he hits the characterization, I think, pitch perfect. Mm-hmm. But with Achilles, he is so close to just making fun of the fact that Achilles is a clothes horse and sort of would be the equivalent to a CrossFit enthusiast who never shuts up <laughs> about his routine and his workouts and how good he looks mm-hmm. and spends a lot of time on his hair, etc. Mm-hmm. But no, he has to just cross over the line to a lot of gay jokes about him. And that was yeah. disappointing as well. And I know I it's 1985, but it wasn't 1965. It's it certainly right. was it's not... 1985. Yeah. 
I mean, you couldn't make those references on screen, even though there are lines in the script that are also here in this version that get past the censors. Like the, um, what was it, the uh, Bacchanade on her first orgy. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Nervous as it Bacchanade at her first orgy. Mm, yeah. like, Which oh, was yeah. memorable. Oh, yeah. Some Metaphor. of that stuff, though, I feels like it feeds into the fact that they're talking about Greek times. Mm-hmm. You know, they talk about how women are basically, like, second-class citizens so Mm. some of that like misogyny Mm. that's included in the book Mm. i take as being like just of the time that he is talking about well and it tends to come from homer himself and i was surprised that towards the end homer turns out to be a lot more morally ambiguous than i would have expected from the beginning yeah oh yeah so it could be portraying homer as more of an ass than we might have initially realized towards the end he's saying he's not sure whose side he's on himself He's not even sure if he's playing both sides or one or the other. Yeah. So it's not in a complete vacuum. Yeah. yeah. Well, and he even points out, you know, it's kind of funny that here I am relaying this information and now I've lost both of my eyes. Yes. I'm I'm the the reporter on duty, you know, <laughs> telling everyone what's happening, but I can't even see it myself. Yeah. Um, one of the weaknesses of the Romans, which once again I really enjoyed, was that the the different letters all sound like they're written in the same voice. Yeah. And it's a really funny voice that I enjoyed a lot, but he doesn't really differentiate among the perspectives of the different characters right. other than the events they witnessed rather than sort of their perspective mm. on it. And this was the the perfect uh, point of view character for him oh, yeah. to take. Yeah. And, you know, Ian was the point of view character for so many of the previous books and it worked well, but this is something I thought really a rare opportunity for one of these writers to see to kind of make cracks about how someone someone is as evasive of Achilles as a writer would be of a tax inspector. Yes. (laughs) Oh yeah, that keeps coming up. I mean, Robert Holmes in his Doctor Who scripts talks about Mm -hmm. the tax man constantly. So, yeah. (laughs) One voice worked really well for him here. Oh yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And that that bit about copyright protection. Yes, (laughs) yes. Uh. And yet at the beginning... I, I might, if I'm not yeah, forcibly stopped, read uh, aloud from it. Um, he has a really beautiful perspective, I thought, that it's quite wry as well on what it's like to uh, be a writer, is how he is... Let me let's see if I can get it here. Mm-hmm. Um, well, relevant to our earlier discussion, you think it's sad to be old? Nonsense, it's a triumph. Uh, I never thought I'd make it past 30. That's what we were all saying here. <laughs> Said, uh, men do not frequently... Uh, survive to senility in these dangerous times but then being blind I suppose I can hardly be considered much of a threat to anyone so somehow I've been allowed to live although probably more by negligence than by charity or proper concern for the elderly Uh, but I've missed the part here but he says that he's been allowed to sort of uh, stumble through the world and not be forced to explain himself in the way that more prominent people might be Mm -hmm. able to Mm -hmm. and he hasn't been able to affect much in the world but he has been able to observe it yes yeah. yeah, and that is exactly what this point of view character does. Kind of floats through it. Mm-hmm. And the weird thing is, whenever he interacts with other characters, that's when he gets himself in trouble. Yes. That's yeah. usually when an eye gets put out, or another <laughs> eye gets put out, his body gets thrown right in a, Yeah, or he gets, you know, put in a prison cell with them, or any number of things which makes it even more interesting that homer does not exist in the televised version really it's not there 
closest thing to Homer is a one-eyed mute servant of Agamemnon named Cyclops. Which is considerably lamer than what we have in the book. Much lamer. And in fact, it's kind of weird what happens there because um, Cyclops' main moment of glory is when Stephen and Vicky are in the cell. And I guess he's been following him like Lassie. And Stephen is basically, Cyclops, yeah, go go tell the doctor. Go tell Agamemnon. We're in here. That we You shouldn't. It's basically the same thing that um, Homer is told to tell them. But the difficulty is that, um, sorry, I went in the save mode there for a moment. Um, the difficulty there is that Cyclops does nothing else. Mm. Yeah, but that's fine because you've basically mm. lost the one character that isn't interesting mm. for the page. Yeah. And you brought in a narrator character who is delightful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely lovely. And I, I think the fact that. He, that Homer has kind of absolved that role. It, it works. It works well. It's like you, you wouldn't even have to know that there was another character called Cyclops in the televised version. Not it just it it plays into the comedy of him losing an eye. Yeah, which isn't really funny, but it's like <laughs> but the way he it is funny it. Game. Yeah, but especially the foreshadowing yes. both times. Yes, yes. <laughs> especially when he says, oh, "Talk about irony." If I'd known then, <laughs> yeah, be um, a firsthand eyewitness. <laughs> Yeah, and just having having some of the characters like poke fun at him about having just the one, and, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, I was squeamish about some of the comedic violence in the Romans because you know Nero really did kill a lot of people. Yeah. But this is such a shadowy story in history about how much of any of it ever really happened, other than there was some war. That mm-hmm. it's okay to laugh at the eye being poked out because. It didn't actually happen. <laughs> There's some very good comedic description of violence in here. Yeah, yeah. there really is. Especially when, um... Who is it that kills, at the very beginning, Achilles kills... Hector. 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 And the way that's described is just howlingly funny. Wait, that may be written down here. <laughs> yeah, it's something along the lines of, uh, let's see, where is it? Two men were fighting in the field. That's the beginning of chapter two. Yes, there it is. And the fact that they're talking in um, blank verse. Right. And the fact fact that it keeps getting brought up. (laughs) Yes, that Homer is so insulted when he's not threatened in blank verse. He's like, what is this, a class slide? Can we use it on one another? How is that fair? That's not fair at all. That means I don't mean anything to you. Right. Because you're not speaking to me in blank verse. Ah, <laughs> uh, let's see. Ah, oh, okay, here we have. The thing pierced his body in the region of the clavicle, I would imagine, and emerged, festooned with his internal arrangements, somewhere in the lumbar district. Blood <laughs> and stuff everywhere, you know. I don't like to think of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, stuff like that is just... And bearing in mind that, again, the, the target audience for target books <laughs> is... Teenage boys, uh-huh. yeah, they're going to be eating this up. They may not be eating it's up. It's partly the torture reference. porn, though. <laughs> a little, yeah, exactly. It's not yeah. that. It's, it's not, that, not that at all. So I have a personal connection to this in that in 2002, in my first full-time job out of college, mm-hmm. I edited. I'm ashamed I remember so little of this now. Um, a 
19th century young adult retelling of the Iliad. I updated the language for it for the publisher really? for at the time. And I'm embarrassed to remember it to say it so long ago, I don't actually remember the name of the author. Good uh, So I care about this more than I should, and I know a lot better than I know Doctor Who, but I'm getting to the stage in life where I've forgotten more than I ever learned. So there's so much I was embarrassed I had to check Wikipedia for <laughs> during this. But I really loved the brief appearance of Hector at the beginning because in, in adaptations of the Iliad, Hector has become the Scott Summers of the Iliad. Oh, it's such a <laughs> stick in the mud. Oh, God, why is he so so morose all the time? Oh, why is he sleeping with Emma Frost? He's, he's boring. He's married and he has a kid and a job. And who gives a care? And, oh, Achilles, you're so young and hot and sexy. And I just like this because I've never liked Achilles, and Hector is so much better, and he is the best trash talker of all time. Mm -hmm. um, and so I like that we have this wonderfully uh, sexy description of him, <laughs> because we never get sexy Hector, it seems like, even in that movie that came know. out 10 or 15 years ago. You're like, right. I, I wanted Eric Bana to be sexy. I always want to like Eric Bana, well, and I never really did. Yeah, yeah, I think it's no. Eric Bana. Yeah. I, th I think Eric Bana's incredibly hot. But it just didn't quite work in that part. But no, I can see that. Yeah. So what we've got here, if I may, flip to the more, um, <laughs> as, as Cotton would put it, libidinous parts here. <laughs> he has a wonderful description of the armor. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. I love that. This whole boiling over physique was restrained somewhat inadequately by a bronze-studded, sweat-stained uh, sweat leather armor, which no doubt smelled abominable. Uh, to confine even partially such a bursting physical extravagance was, the leather felt, far beyond the call of duty for what the Tanners had led it to expect. Yes. <laughs> and just his, his brief anthropomorphization of the, like, armor, the point of view of the armor is so much funnier than almost anything in the other books that we've read. And actually, I could be getting it wrong. I'm pretty sure that's about Hector, not Achilles. It is. Yeah, um, it is. But yes, I, I am I am definitely on board for a little sexy Hector. And also, um, <laughs> he is, uh, many of the audience may be familiar with my love for uh, 80s Edward James Olmos on Miami Vice. Um, oh, yes. Always the person sort of looking sternly and rolling his eyes, wondering why he is surrounded by preening weirdos. <laughs> yeah, that has come up before. And in, uh, the Cap in Captain America's Civil War, I really love the way they had Sam Wilson be this character. Like, <laughs> so, you like cats, huh? <laughs> and his dislike of Bucky and Black Panther oh, yeah. based on the fact that why don't you put on normal clothes and just fight, okay? <laughs> Instead of being such a weirdo. <laughs> so I felt like Hector really played that role here and I was glad oh, he was no. finally given his due even if we came in at the end of his story within the beginning. But sure. I was delighted that uh, Cotton went with uh, Odysseus instead of Achilles. I don't like Odysseus, but I hate Achilles a lot. Yeah. And he was much more interesting to work with. And as much as... a bit as of a heel. I enjoy his hmm. bashing Achilles for being a clothes horse and being preening. It was way too close to gay bashing to be enjoyable. Yeah, it really so. was, especially with the the spitting because he was talking about him lisping and. Oh, I messed it up. Yeah, yeah, that was the bit that got got me a little bit. I was like, ah, all right, fine, we're doing this, are we? The Achilles probably can't whistle either, since. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Men of that era believed that gay men couldn't whistle. 
bizarre superstition. It really is a bizarre superstition. Well, I mean, I can't whistle, but then I'm gayer than most. Oh, I can whistle. I know really you can. Well. I've heard I you whistle. Can't whistle, and I'm totally straight. So, exactly. Yeah. There you go. <clears throat> well, we're, so, we're glad to hear it. Oh, we're glad we cleared <laughs> that, that up for all time. Right. That theory debunked. There you go. <laughs> um, what a representative sample of three people. Yes. Uh, speaking of. Uh, Speaking of sexual references, um, Cotton really has no interest in beating around the bush, as it were, about the uh, starts of what caused the Trojan War to start. I love this, yes. And every adaptation of the Uh is really hard on Agamemnon, as they should be. Yes. was fantastic. Yes, exactly. It's like, oh, well, Helen, you know, if that's the sort of thing you like, sure. But what was it that he said about Paris? (laughs) Paris... She she's rumored to be the most beautiful woman in the world, and Paris is certainly one of those people that would probably know from reputation since he's been all around the world and has been with yes. that many women. Described as yeah. a spendthrift and a lecher. Yes, yes. has lived la vie parisienne. Yes, <laughs> love that moment. And we're not even we're not even out of chapter two yet. No, that's the good God. Um. Let's talk about a few other specifics then. Pause briefly on Agamemnon just saying, well, he'd been trying to start a war for years. Actually says he had bullied historians yes. to try to find a good sort of political or religious or geographical excuse. They couldn't find anything at all. Troy exactly. Clean. But he wanted some of that sweet trade route action. Yes. Um, but arguably the Iliad is one of the best examples ever of an accidentally proto-feminist text in really? that if everyone would stop fighting over women as property, none of the suffering in the story happens yes. at all. Because, of course, the broader context is Helen runs off, and there are different versions. Was she abducted? Was she in love? And she was. But the actual Iliad, it starts with Chryseis and Briseis, oh, yeah. who are local women in the, from the Troy or the environs of Troy who have been kidnapped by the Greeks when they go out pillaging. When they go a pillaging locally and bring back food and sex slaves. Um, (laughs) Like they do. And yeah, well, but this is going to come up later because we have Chryseis and then Cressida and whether or not they're the same character. Mm -hmm. But the Iliad itself starts 10 years in. Oh, yeah. And Chryseis is the priestess of Apollo, who is, uh, was it Agamemnon's? Yeah. Uh, Let's just say it's sex slave, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And her father and maybe a disguised Apollo come to negotiate her release. I think there's a plague on the camp. And uh, Achilles tells Agamemnon, you've got to give her back in order to cure the plague. And Agamemnon says, sure, but I'm taking your sex slave, Briseis. <laughs> and that's how the story starts. Oh, and when wow. they make up near the end of the story, the way Achilles phrased it is, we were fools to ever quarrel over those women. Look at all the trouble that they've brought us. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and I don't think it's meant of a crit- as a critique of them, but maybe it is. Well, especially coming out of Achilles' <laughs> yes, mouth. I mean, people, seriously, yeah. it's like, yeah, I, I lost my baby husband, Patroclus, a little while back. But look at all the silliness that and these girls... I don't know if the traditional scholarly perspective on this is that our concepts of morality have changed so much in the last 3,800 years or so, mm-hmm. or that everyone hates Achilles and thinks he's a selfish ass, <laughs> or it's both. But here, I like the way Cotton goes straight into Agamemnon wants a war. He's been desperately casting around for an excuse. He has no delusion, delusion of any of these conflicts actually being over women's behavior. It's all, all right. he wants a war and he gets he it. He wants a war and he so. gets it. I mean, that's not really far from where we are now. 
This oh god, oh, that god. is true. Jesus, except there are no women involved. If there if there were, we'd probably be in a better spot. Maybe, hopefully. Uh, uh, speaking of current events, did you notice the use of the word dotard? Yes, yes. I have never seen this word before really? in my life. You've never heard before of this last someone being in their dotage. Or... Yes, I've heard doddering old fool or and being in dotage, but I've never heard the noun form dotard before, and it's in this book. Which I've always heard pronounced dotard, mm. but dotard, <laughs> they're probably saying it that way because it's Trump and they're trying to get away with saying the non-PC term that they really want to call right. it. Fair enough. But that's how I've always heard it pronounced as well as dotard. Yeah. I've never heard I had it never dotard. heard it pronounced, right. so it seemed timely. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it did come up. and Yeah, in fact, I put it in my notes as well. Uh, it was like, oh, yeah. Also, Odysseus describes himself as deplorable. Deplorable, <laughs> exactly. And then that same chapter, Agamemnon calls the doctor's arrest um, a probationary period of cautious yes! warfare. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> one advisor is telling him, "Oh, you should kill him." The other one saying, "Oh, you should let him go." And then Menelaus says, "Well, you know, just let's, let's split the difference." And Agamemnon <laughs> says, "I'm going to kill him a little bit." Yes. <laughs> yeah, probationary period. Cautious worship, just to be sure. Or describing the TARDIS as a camel in the last stages of dementia precox. Yes! It's like, oh my god, this is just brilliant. <laughs> the sound yeah. of the... <laughs> yes, the TARDIS. Yes. We never got to your initial impressions of the story. Oh, god. What can I tell you about my initial impressions of this, except that um, this is the deepest read I've done of this book since it first came out. I loved this book when it first came out. I love it even more now. But it's one of those stories that I haven't talked about this yet. The fact that none of the episodes exist at all. Uh, There's some 8mm clip snippets of certain episodes. From people pointing the camera at their yeah, TVs? Oh. just that. Nothing more. And they didn't do telesnaps again. Mm. So they've got promotional shots from this story, but no telesnaps. So we don't have a visual record of the story that we would normally have, mm. which has made reproductions of the stories is of the sort that the Doctor Who Restoration team normally does viciously difficult. Yeah. Is there any audio? Oh, yeah. The audio exists. Unfortunately, the audio is, you know, kind of muddy quality. <laughs> yeah. It's <has> <laughs> not the best. I think I have the sentence break wrong there. The audio exists, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. That's the thing, though. That's the way I encountered the story from... Uh, uh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. let me try that again. I first read the book as a teenager. Okay. Then... Probably in the early 90s, back when you were still able to email people and trade audio cassettes and get mm. recordings of the uh, Doctor Who um, missing audios, I got audio of it and listened to it for the first time, and it was one of the few stories that holds up as an audio. Mm, okay. There are, no, there are no long silences. Well, Maybe, there's enough going on. There's so to... much going on. And there's so many witty lines, and Cotton was first and foremost a radio writer. Ah, there and you a, go. A comedy a radio writer, so well, it's he's there. He's so good at creating sight gags that you can't see. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, uh, Menelaus or Agamemnon like, starts fishing for something in his beard, and these sort of like physical <laughs> comedy things he describes so well and so concisely during yeah. mostly dialogue. I'm saying that um, Troy was a breathtaking city. So different from Agamemnon's tent, which was breathtaking for <laughs> other reasons. Other reasons. Yeah. <laughs> you heard go tide. 
other thing he did was very different from the original story is the Iliad, the Greeks and the Trojans have basically the same religion. Right. The Trojans worship Athena, and here, um, Hector's basically an atheist. He says, the gods? What gods? <laughs> yes. Do you dare to swear by your petty pantheology? Which is a lovely I word. Love that. Um, that ragtag of squabbling hobbledyhoy Olympians. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. So when um, Achilles thinks that the doctor is Zeus, mm-hmm. um, Homer's trying to figure out what's going on here. He says, mind you, we Greeks are constantly expecting materializations of some god or other, a god to intervene in human affairs. Well, no, to be honest, not really expecting. Yes. Put it that way, our religious education has prepared us to accept it, should it occur. <laughs> but that is by no means to say we anticipate it as a common phenomenon. It's the sort of thing that happens to other people, perhaps. Right. But hardly before one's own eyes, in the middle of everyday affairs, such as the present formalistic bloodletting. So, <laughs> certainly not. The Trojans, on the other hand, as you will have gathered from Hector's nihilistic comments, <laughs> have no such uncomfortable superstitions to support them in their hour of need. And he goes on to talk about how the Trojans basically worship the horse. Yeah. In yeah. partly an abstract way, but also they really like horses because horses are the source of their military power. Oh, yeah. And that was yeah. a nice perspective on of course. that. Thought. Of course. Sorry, I had to. Yes. Of Is course. there a doctor in the horse? I had, oh, well, yes. And speaking <laughs> of those puns. And <laughs> the chapter titles. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, Cotton was told he could not do punny titles. In the book? No, in the original televised version. Oh, of the episode? Yeah. uh, In fact, only one of them made it on screen. And that was because the um, script editor, Donald Tosh, insisted on it. Uh, I'm trying to remember which one it was. Why would you hire Cotton and tell him he can't make puns? I know. What are you paying for? Exactly. Exactly. But he wanted to do Doctor and the Horse... Is There a Doctor in the Horse is the uh, episode title for uh, episode four. Um, okay, Instead, they made it Death of a Spy, strangely uh, enough. Um, I'm trying to remember which one made it. kind of a lame clip. Yeah, one of them made it, though. There was one that made it. Uh, it wasn't that one. I know it's not that one. It is. Temple of You. That was I a good wish, one. I wish. I love that yes. one. I love that Polo, one. Polo, Young Lovers? No, it's not that either. Not a Doctor and the Doctor Horse. Doctor and the Horse, uh, yeah, it's not that one. Small Profit, Quick Return. Oh, that was a love. That I did make it in? That one oh, good, it in. good. That's, no, that's... that's episode two. Okay. And that one made it in, and only because the script editor said, you know, you're paying Cotton to do this, and he's <laughs> doing a marvelous job. But no, Zeus Ex Machina didn't make it in, which is my favorite. <laughs> yes. A rather high T. <laughs> and uh what was the other one? Oh, what was the really uh a little touch of hubris <laughs> yes. uh, i enjoyed the trojans at home, <laughs> the trojans at home. Yes. that that chapter particularly was interesting interesting uh in, in the guise of homer interesting take on the trojans versus the greeks that the trojans were basically a big happy family mm-hmm. and right. decadent and the Greeks were a bunch of quarreling, uh, bickering people. What did he say? Which they were. They don't have two morals to rub together, so history dictates that they are the ones who are going to win. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which is so close to our own time. But reading about the Trojans at home, all I could picture was like the Real Housewives or like the Kardashians <laughs> yes. or something. It was very much just like it would be on TV now as a reality TV show. It absolutely would be. Very um, good family sick burn. You know, Cassandra's the sassy older <laughs> sister who's like brooding oh in the corner God, and like. Yes. <laughs> You see Paris appeal to the company yeah. at large? I am treated I, with more respect by the enemy than by my own family. 
Yeah. If they don't know you as well as we do. do. <laughs> <laughs> Which is for one zinger. And if, if I were the actress playing Cassandra and I didn't get that line, I would be so pissed yeah. off because she is such a misery all throughout the story. Yeah. Though she also sets up that wonderful line that ends uh, episode three. It's like, whoa to Troy. Well, thank God he didn't say whoa to the horse. Yeah. <laughs> I love that line. Uh, especially since... um. Which character is that? That's Paris, isn't it? Um, that was Paris, a, yeah. yeah. Who keeps coming home with things. I like the yes. idea that he's the one that no one has respect for. He keeps bringing him, look, I right. found a prisoner in the field. <laughs> it's Stephen Diomedes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which confuses me. I'm used to an S on the end. But, yeah. <laughs> but we all have many people have weird first names. Look, I found this box. I think it's a temple. Look, I found a big horse. The idea that it's an excuse for him to stop looking for Achilles who can challenge yes, him. He doesn't really want to do that. Oh my god. And on audio, that's just as funny when he's out on the plane going, Achilles. Achilles. Just like looking for him. I Even Homer find at one point is that relaxing behind the bush. <laughs> yes, relaxing behind the bush. <laughs> and he finds Homer that way too. He's like, oh, old, old thing. Let's go get you. And he talks like a British schoolboy. I love that. Oh, old thing. Let's go and get that eye cleaned up. Yeah. That's quite disgusting. Well, it goes from the beginning describing how decadent Paris is and how much he gets around and the spoiled second son to Paris in the story is actually presented as the most sensible person there. Yes. He's not off to get killed because he hasn't been given a good enough reason to get right, killed. Exactly. And, and Homer yeah. actually <laughs> feels some remorse over the fact that he does get killed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's I like love also... when Stephen's trying to incite him to violence and yes. hurling out all these insults. And Homer's so <laughs> impressed that he's learned the nomenclature so quickly. And Paris is like, you know, there, there. There's no need to get violent about it right off the bat. I'm sure it's just all a misunderstanding. Right. Let's calm down. No, you I mean... son of a. No, no, no. I'm sure it's fine. What are you here for? <laughs> exactly. Well, it, it, he, he's like they even point out he's like he's the middle child. He's like. Yeah. He's the middle son, so compared to your older brother, who was amazing and wonderful and the best oh, fighter ever, yeah. then he's like the little sniveling number two that's like, yes, he's more intellectual. He yeah. thinks about things more, so he's like, I don't need to do all that yeah. to get what I want. I can find other means but, to... And your sister's the temple priestess. Why can't you be more like her? It's like, right. who, who would want to be? Right. But I <laughs> think maybe it's true the Thor's own reliable narrator... Homer describes him as sniveling, but he's not portrayed as sniveling. No, no, I got the no. idea that Homer is supposed to be getting it wrong. Yeah. yeah. He's actually <clears throat> the most modern person in the story, the most diplomatic. Speaking of which, we've got to talk about Homer a little bit more. I know we've, we've been talking about nothing about Homer, but have you gotten the impression that Homer, by the time he's telling the story, has traveled in the TARDIS at some point? He talks about meeting the doctor several times. Yeah, once we get to the end of the book, they talk, yeah, yeah. he's met a And couple. which doctor is that at the very I end? I wasn't sure he was saying he traveled in the TARDIS, just that he'd encountered the doctor in these different situations. Yeah, which he has. take place hundreds of years apart, but he's counting. Yeah, um, exactly. He talks about, oh, you say you whisk me away when the uh, Library of Alexandria was about oh, to be burned. Oh, yes, he did. Yeah. But I don't, he I didn't get the impression he'd been in the TARDIS. And yet... He makes some of these <clears throat> wonderful, absolutely wonderful anachronistic references 
that only a time traveler could make. Yes. He seems to understand what the life of a time traveler is like better than Vicky and Steven even do. Because I'm not really sure if that was a joke or not. Like, I think it like is. Like a sort of a meta joke or to so. imply what you're saying. I, I believe it is. It's just, if you're, if you're looking at the book on its face, then you're saying, how could Homer know this? This is very odd. Well, Homer, I mean, literally and figuratively, is an outsider. Mm-hmm. He he very much seems like someone who is always observing the action and not taking part in it. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe he's just s- sitting under trees thinking about wonderful things that have happened. <laughs> you know, creating stories in his own head. He even talks about using, you know, the events that he's seen for later stories. You know, uh, this, this would make yeah. good copy. Yes. Um, these make good headlines. Well, he's so excited about he's... the idea of a time traveler. He has half a dozen ideas for books. Yes. And the doctor can help yeah. him develop them. Exactly. So whether or not he actually has experienced time travel or anything, he is at least like thinking about the idea yeah. of he has the what is out there. No. Yeah. Okay, I can see uh, that. I got the impression that he wasn't virtuous, virtuous enough to make it into the TARDIS. Probably not. Well, that and <clears throat> the Doctor already has enough trouble hurting Stephen and Vicky, and this mm-hmm. time he manages to, you know, shed Vicky. Why would you want to be hurting around a blind man from ancient Greece to begin with? Right. Well, I mean, it's bad enough he's taken on a handmaiden from ancient Greece. I was just gonna say they picked up Katrina along the way. Yeah, Katarina. Like, uh, Katarina. But yeah, we'll um, yeah we'll talk about her. Who doesn't <clears throat> seem like that's that's not an even trade for Vicky. No, it's not meant to be. I, I can't say anything more about Katarina, though. Is she going to die soon? Oh, God, yeah. Good. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry to give that away. No, no, I'm just surprised you're so offended by her, because I thought she was just more kind of a non-entity in the book. She's she is, more... and that's why it seems so weird yeah. that they would bring her onto the ship. Yeah, and she's considered one of the list of companions, and that that's the odd thing, too, because she is there mm-hmm. for maybe, you know... I think it's two and a half episodes, maybe one and a half. Yeah. Okay, so not two then, whole stories. But no, just, no. She, yeah. she, she comes and goes. Okay. Um, we will see her go during the Daleks' master plan. Okay. In fact, she of is the first, of course. the first companion death ever in Doctor Who. Mm. Which, of course, means there's not much of an impact. Well, because Katarina. Yeah, I was going to say, she doesn't have very much going for her. But there yet. wasn't a precedent yet, was there, for a no. companion who is gone so quickly? No. There wasn't. And this is, um, this actually was something that uh, Hartnell had trouble with as well. Because Hartnell, in a letter to a fan after he retired several years later, said part of the reason why he left was because the stories were getting very dark and they were getting kind of nasty in tone. Hmm. And he didn't agree with that much. Katarina's death. <laughs> now let me go back to my anti Semitic newspaper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. So that could have been part of it. But yeah. Katarina actually has less to do in the book here than she does on screen. Okay. Which is saying something. Reading this, it's, yeah, it's like, how did how did she get picked as the one? I mean, I understand, like, Homer tells her to talk to Vicky and helps her Vicky escape, but it's like, how do you just decide that, like, this is the person that you're going to bring on to the TARDIS? You it's just like, put your finger on it. It's like, Homer is the one not liking yeah. the decision. No, no, because Katarina was forced on everybody. <laughs> basically um in fact i have to do my research for the daleks master plan before the convention luckily i have a month to do this in in fact i'm hoping i can talk to john peel before that because that would be nice to ask him but um katarina yeah cotton's not a big fan 
obviously of her and tries to make better use of her than she's used on screen but the whole reason she's there is because cassandra says you know this cressida woman she's obviously a witch i've got to have one of my handmaidens follow her around and she just happens to be following vicky around when it's time to take everybody back to the tardis because in the original version steven gets injured Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask Troy. how how do things play out in the televised? Not it? very well. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stephen gets injured, and Vicky brings him back, and Vicky decides, you know, I'm I'm staying behind because there's this nice nice bit of toddy named uh, Troilus who's kind of got the hots for me too. I got to appear in my epic later. Yeah, exactly. Like, I even feel like he would have made a better addition to. Oh God, no. 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 <laughs> no. More than Katarina. No. This is the most definitive no, no we've ever heard from someone who would. Were our, he our dad, he would have just sent us to bed with no right. How yeah. dare you say no. that? No. No. Yeah, Troilus is... Uh, well, um, Trey, Trey Corte has described Stephen Taylor as one of the most attractive men ever to grace the TARDIS floor. Although now I'm picturing Steve Taylor, and it's not working at all for It's me. not working at all, and it shouldn't. Um, I'm picturing Tyler. He's a Troy- totally different no, person. God, no, God, that's really terrible. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, as that's we were saying... You. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> One of these days I'll have a podcast of my own. Uh, Troilus <laughs> is not very attractive to my eye. And I think Vicky could have done better, except, of course, it's not Vicky's decision. It's the fucking producer's Writers, decision yes. to let Maureen O'Brien go. Because, let me tell you this much for nothing, I'm not spoiling anything, actually I am, the next long-term companion we get is even less of a good trade-off for Vicky. And I'm not talking about Sarah Kingdom, we will get to Sarah Kingdom, you and I will get to Sarah Kingdom, you'll have to read about her on your own, I'm afraid. But Dalek's Master Plan. Um, played again by the absolutely awesome woman whose name just skipped tri- trippingly out of my mind. Jean Marsh. There we go. The splendiferous Jean Marsh plays Sarah Kingdom. And still does in audios. That's how good that companion is. And then we get Dodo. The appropriately named the flightless Dodo. ancient bird? Yes. Take the ancient part out and you got it. Dodo. Flightless bird. Dodo is actually a dodo. <laughs> no. I'm the amateur for a reason. I'm like, was there, was there an avian companion? I'm, I'm right. No, you sorry. had me going. Well, here's the thing. There was an avian companion, but in the comic strip. But they but they ate it. No, they and did everyone, not. And Arnold no, said, this no. is too dark for me now no, that we're eating they the companions. Eat, they did not eat Frobisher the penguin, no. <laughs> He was not actually a penguin anyway. He was a shape changer, and it's really complicated, so don't bother me with <laughs> I think it. you can't through the essence. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. But Dodo, oh God, we'll get to Dodo. Gotcha. I don't want to do Dodo right now. I, I do don't. I, no. No. Fuck no. Shit no. Fuck no. Okay. Instead, I want to talk about how pissed off I am that Vicky goes out like this. Hmm. Yeah. Because this, I mean... Vicky isn't that great a companion to begin with. I think we called her Lazy Susan at one point. She's not very well developed. She doesn't even get a fucking last name until the audio dramas, and even then it's kind of a weird one. But it's like it's not even her fault. I feel no. like she was great wasted potential. Yeah. Yes, I definitely. really like the actress from the bit I've seen. She, 
she has the potential to be a great companion. They just don't let her be, no. be one. I keep no, expecting each book to be the one where they're going to develop Vicky, and it never And it never happens. happens. It never materializes. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. Because, like, oh, I, I love, obviously, I keep talking about this, how much they have her bicker with Steven, but that's it. Yeah. And I think the only reason I say that Troilus would have been a better companion is because he at least has a little more backstory in this book than Katarina. Katarina is in like four sentences and then that's it. Yeah. So Troilus we at least have a little bit of a feeling for. We at least could understand like where he's coming from. Katarina it's like who the heck is she? Right. That's true. That's the only reason I say that Troilus would have been a better trade-off or at least an addition. Granted I would have liked a companion like Katarina. Yes. (laughs) If they had committed whole hog to her. If they hadn't produced presented her as she knows she's going to die because it turns out there's a cut scene from the televised version it's not even mentioned here that she has a premonition that she Mm. is going to die Mm. and she will indeed die and Dalek's master plan she'll do so in a kind of a heroic way but the idea of having a companion traveling in time who you have to explain the concept of a doorknob to yes I find that kind of interesting yeah I like that idea. I like the fact of somebody being so completely out of their depth that she thinks, when she first comes into the TARDIS and the televised version, that she's in the afterlife. Hmm. And she thinks the Doctor's a god. And he has to tell her, don't call me my lord, Doctor. Call me simply Doctor. And that, I love that idea. I love that. I love how there's potential there. And of course, it's just wasted. Troilus would have given us a little bit more of that, but then you run into the problem of having you know, an epic uh, character from an epic poem being part of the TARDIS crew. Yeah. Which we've already had, actually. Yeah. Well, and you would have the issue of, like, the him doting on Vicky and... Yeah, yeah. exactly. And that just would have got, been sick making. Exactly. So he wouldn't have been a better choice. I just, I could see it working. It yeah. was the only part of the story that felt perfunctionary and completely joyless, which I took as symptomatic of maybe Cotton, no, I know that he wrote the episode remembering when he was told to do this told to write this and it wasn't the story that he wanted to write oh yeah and i didn't take it as having anything to do with this particular actor this particular character so much as he didn't want to write out vicky and then write in some new person yeah and i think that's probably and, why i like dislike troilus so much because the scenes with troilus in the televised version or audio anyway slow the story right down they are dire yeah. They're like, oh, we're the same age as each other. Oh, this is so lovely. And it's like, oh my fucking god, just shut up. And he improves upon it here. All he does is yeah. describe his pec muscles, mostly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Homer says how disgusting it is that they're just all over each other. And it's just like, <laughs> Stephen and I were just sitting there completely bored. And it's like, yeah, so are the listeners. Yeah. yeah. But it's funny. It's played, yeah, it's yeah. played yes. for laughs. But it cannot be played for laughs in the televised version. Yeah. That's the problem. Because that, that scene happens with the, the Trojans at home where they're kind of describing the Adams family as they were. Um, you know, here's the dad, here's the goth sister who like has entrails. Here's the middle here's the little middle middle son who can't live up to his jock older brother's oh expectations. Well, that, does that make, yes, yeah. it is. Does that make the doctor Uncle Fester? Maybe. Um, but that's kind of how it felt to me. It's like as, as they're just kind of just describing the family in a way. Like yeah. they are these kind of like weird characters. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Troilus like doting over Vicky 
it just it seemed to fit. It yeah, worked, it does. but uh, but it, it's deadly on screen. Ultimately, yeah, it falls flat. Yeah, not sure she was trying. He was trying to do a fancy literary trick or not, because I had to Google Cressida. I'm thinking, isn't this a medieval story? Trials and Cressida. Yeah, yeah and is. I like. I can pronounce like half names in the Iliad. This is a curse of having been a homeschooler. I know all these words I don't know how to say properly. Um, so I, because I didn't remember her actually being in the Iliad. And if I understand correctly from pillaging Wikipedia, she's not. She's based no. on Chryseis. Yeah, she is. And that the original story, she is one of the captured. She's one of the captured women. Um, but not a very major character, but it's this medieval epic that has her as a lover of Troilus, mm-hmm. and then she runs off with Diomedes and maybe comes back, maybe not. Diomedes. And there I thought go. that Cotton was saying, it really is two different people, because yeah. uh, Priam talks about how, oh yeah, I had a cousin with this name as well. <laughs> and I thought yes. that was the Chryseis, that, that was Chryseis of the Iliad, and then Vicky is... Yes. Cressida or Cressida of the Middle Ages, which actually Cressida. kind of worked. Cressida. Cressida. Uh, is it Spokane or Spokane or Spoken? <laughs> it's spo- it's Spokane. Yes. Well, but I actually like the idea that, no, it really, his idea is, it really was two different people with yeah. the same name, and that, that was, I thought, cute. Yeah. Um, As he showed off that he had a classical education. Yeah, and I, I love it when Cotton shows off. I adore yeah. it. I, I love the wordplay in this book, and I know we are... Still jumping around quite a bit, and um, it's fine. Well, you mentioned earlier that the Crusades or Crusader or whatever was Cressida. Cress- <laughs> however you want to say it. You're making there. that up. Um, they they say something along the lines of her being. For, uh, I think they mention Apollo with her at some point. In the original Iliad, her father is the priest of Apollo. I think she might be a priestess of Apollo. I feel like. At some point, whenever she comes out of the TARDIS... They think that she's a priestess of Apollo. Yeah, so that, right. that kind of ties in with that like weird confusion of characters. Mm-hmm. And so it's like... Yes. But it works that it's someone totally different who has the sexy... Because original Chryseis is, doesn't have sexy adventures. She has yeah. rapey adventures, if Very you will. Very rapey She doesn't have a love story, if you will, the way no. me- the medieval character does. So it makes sense. Oh, we think it's the same person. And my cousin has this name. But it's yeah. Vicky. Yeah. And I think that's Cotton also trying to give Vicky a happy ending more than you know the character actually yeah. deserves. Um, definitely the happy ending that Maureen O'Brien deserved. Yeah. Because Maureen O'Brien's acting in that last episode is heartbreaking. Mm. Especially since you get a last scene of them on the plane. Troilus realizes that his entire civilization is gone. Except mm-hmm. for these cousins that are kind mm-hmm. of riding in on their horses. Oh, great. It's cousin Aeneas. He's yeah, so pretentious. Exactly. Yeah, it's them. <laughs> it's that side oh, of the we've got to go visit his girlfriend in Carthage. <laughs> stay at get sidetracked there's a lovely little bit where she realizes yeah i knew all along this was going to happen i wanted to save you and i wanted Mm. us to create a new troy together and that's her last line in it Mm. it's actually quite sweet yeah and the doctor even has a moment where the doctor's got a lot on his mind at the end of the televised version he's like oh god steven's injured i don't know how to treat him i've got to take him somewhere where he can be treated there's this girl who keeps thinking she's in the afterlife and she's calling me God and I need to keep her busy. And Vicky, oh dear, Vicky has left, but Vicky wanted to. I can't think about that right now. It's just all over the place. Mm. Lost yeah, another one, what can you do? Yeah, exactly. Oh. It comes down to that. 
he doesn't have time to mourn her. In this book, at least, you have a little bit of a, um, for lack of a better term, you have a refractory period. Hmm. That's not the term I wanted to use, because, of course, we know what that means. But you at least have that moment where Homer and whoever is with him, I think it is Troilus, are on the plane and they're Hmm. listening to the destruction. Hmm. And afterwards, Homer is witness to them getting together and then goes off with them, which is Hmm. just awfully sweet. So it's like, yeah, I want to get back to something serious, though. And this is something that, um, this is something that, oh, I hate this chair. This is something that Dalton said something about before we started recording, and it's that there's not a lot of philosophizing in this particular story, in this particular book. And I think there kind of is, but it's slipped in. Yeah. Because it's it's, a little more subtle. yeah. Yeah. And it's cotton unpacking what it means to be a historical event or be part of a historical Mm. event. Whether this is the first time the Doctor has actively caused history to happen. But the last time it was so blatant was a cotton book when he says that the Doctor accidentally facilitated starting Nero. Yes. Well, not Nero burning Rome, but the fire that would be blamed on Nero. Yes, and interestingly enough... That's the closest that story gets to that. Of course, the televised version, the Doctor is kind of laughing over that because he <clears throat> causes it in a different way. But here, it's not played for laughs. Hmm. It's almost as if Cotton is saying the Doctor is truly regretful that he has stepped into history and has caused this to happen. It's also, and this is something to do with the televised version, viewers at the time noticed it it's the first time that the doctor has not saved the day he does not save the day hmm. he actively causes the destruction of troy he does but he does save Stephen vicky in a way yeah but barely vicky stays behind that's about the only reason why he manages hmm. to save her he saves katarina but that's not his fault um, and it won't take. It won't yeah, and it won't take. Yeah, exactly. But and in a Steven. way, it ends up being like a catch-22. It's like if he doesn't follow through with the Trojan horse infiltrating Troy, then history is changed forever. Yes, yes. And that's something that comes up in the book, too. It's something that's unpacked a little bit. So it's briefly. like so it's like he's kind of damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. If, yeah. he, if he doesn't follow through with what history has told him has happened, mm-hmm. then everything's going to change. He does make a try. He wants to do the flying machine strategy. He does. Yes. Right. Which like, is... And he's like, well, this is terrible. I'm going to kill you anyway. Right. Well, catapult. Well, oh, that's yeah. an interesting word. I should give you a catapult. He thinks it's a swear word. What would yeah. you say to a horse? <laughs> is that a riddle? What do I say to a horse? <laughs> Why is Odysseus being like, all right, you can be the first one to do this. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> this oh, is your plan. So oh, cling to a rock. Right. You yeah, guinea pig. Like, oh, and wait. You, you know, it's not going to work after all. Right. We don't say. <laughs> right. But Homer has an interesting take in chapter 13 on the reason why the doctor in later years does not travel to the past very often. Hmm. And it's a very interesting one. It certainly makes sense of everything that the Hartnell doctor said about not altering history because he says something. I need to get the actual quote. Yeah, I need to. F- I'm trying to find it. I had it highlighted. Like because <clears throat> none of the other authors have done this, mainly because none of the other authors is looking ahead to what the doctor's eventually going to do. This is Cotton writing 
1985, knowing that historical stories, they almost rejected the gunfighters because the producer had changed by the time he finally drafted the script. The producers of this story loved it. They wanted another one. He wrote it, made it just as humorous. The new producer said, uh, well, we don't like historicals and we don't like the humorous vein you've got going through this story. We're going to change this. And he was like, no, 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 no. We, I don't want you to change this. And there was a big hullabaloo, which is why it took him forever to do the third submission. By then, he had another production team had come in and they really didn't like it. And mm-hmm. So he didn't end up doing it. But he says something along the lines of, in chapter 13... It's on the second page of chapter War Games Compulsory. Here it is, thank you. Page 69. That's one of the troubles with time travel, you see. The Doctor was always so anxious not to alter the course of history by meddling that he sometimes didn't realize history couldn't happen if he didn't give it a helping hand now and then. One sees the dangers, of course. Get it wrong and the whole future could be altered. And if you alter the future too much, you might very likely not get a chance to exist in it yourself, if you follow me. I suppose that's why in later years he always preferred to go forward rather than backwards in time. So that whatever happened, he couldn't wipe himself clean off the slate by accident. But the trick is, don't play the giddy goat, just apply to the history books for instructions and then get on with it. And since apparently I'd have written one myself before too long, all I had to do was what I told him. And I couldn't wait to hear what that was. Hmm. Yeah, so it's that wonderful take that he has on the reason why the Doctor doesn't go back in time is because he knows about established history and is too worried about changing it. Yeah. Not that viewers hate historicals, hmm. which is the real reason hmm. historicals stop being done. Yeah. Well, they're only fun if you already know who everyone is. Yes. And this might be the world's best-known shared universe story um, with with lots of prequels and sequels, etc. But I guess if you don't already know something about the characters, it's not as funny. Yeah, exactly. And I have suspect that was the problem they had with the gunfighters, too, because that takes place in the OK Corral. Yeah. So it's a very well-known story. Star Trek's Mm -hmm. done it. They get it wrong as well. The first person narrator for that book is Doc Holliday. <laughs> so yeah, that's fun. That is that's why it's just as much fun. And there is also a weird digression in chapter twelve. Not only does he give the game away about what happens to Vicky, with a little bit of foreshadowing, he also goes off on the strange little digression about why the doctor never reveals his name to anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. As soon as Vicky's given the new name, she becomes the new person. Yeah. And the doctor doesn't want anybody to have that sort of control over him, which mm. is interesting. In fact, it goes in with my theory about Time Lords, except it gets disproven every time any Time Lord ever gives their given name. It's like, oh, well, that disproves that then. Suppose <laughs> um, they all had titles for given names. Well, hmm, they, they don't. That's the thing. Because he has a companion. Uh, the fourth doctor has a companion whose full name is... Romana Duratralunda. Okay. I should have Roma, the noun, Romana for but, short. You know, okay. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, most other Time Lord characters have the Valiar, the Master, the Rani. Um, I'm thinking of another one. The Meddling Monk. Mm-hmm. There we go. Uh, the Warlord. The War Chief. Actually, that, one of those two is not a Time Lord. I can't remember which one it is, though. But yeah, they have titles. You're right. 
Um, except those are chosen more than anything else. Whereas one of my theories, if if ever they were to reboot Doctor Who as an American series, I would say, give the Gallifreyans this. They can't reveal their name to anybody else. It's like uh, the witches mm-hmm. in that one episode where they went back to Shakespeare, Shakespearean yeah. time, the Shakespeare Code. That if you have their name, you have power over them. They fought vampires in their prehistory. That would seem like the sort of race that would love to have power like that over them. So that's why they don't give their name to anybody. But a coon's age. Which is a saying that comes up unexpectedly in this book. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to address that because when I hit it, I prob- well, I probably had the same reaction that the two of you did, having been raised in the South. I was like, oh my god, oh my god, there's racism in this book. And so then I realized... I didn't even know it was a slur until the last ten years. I thought really? it referred literally to a raccoon. It does. Originally, it did. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's transmogrified into a racist slur. Yeah. Um, in Britain, my theory, and again, we've got some listeners out there that fact check us, so please fact check us on this, won't you? Thank yes. you. We have no problem with fact checking. None whatsoever. <laughs> uh, in fact, it's the only way you'll get any response out of me. Um, I believe that the Coons Age has that racial tint in this country. It doesn't have it in Britain. I didn't. My my feeling, my or my thought was, he doesn't know that has other implications because you know I grew up in North Carolina, Tennessee. I didn't actually know it until recently, but he probably did not. Right, right, and I think that's it. It's like um, <laughs> the alternate title for Ten Little Indians by Agatha Christie, which I will not say. Oh yeah, I've heard. Yeah. There's no one who doesn't know what that means. Exactly. And yet, at the time that she was writing it, yeah, it was non-pejorative in British English. In American English, oh, oh yeah. But it's very odd that we also get that characterization of Vicky as a lovable young tomboy space urchin. Mm. I guess that works. (laughs) But then, she transforms in a way that Homer finds kind of entrancing and kind of repulsive about... Her slinking around in the silk and the hairdos and whatnot, and we have that recurring concept of the little girl or the adolescent girl can be kind of interesting, and it's like the author is relating to girls he knew when he was a child and teen, and then she transforms into an adult, and suddenly she's this sort of alien, sexualized not as human creature yeah and we haven't seen it happen right on the page like this before with the transformation from one to the other yes and then it's that's followed directly on by his description of helen yes who is kind of yeah totally worked for me she's she's every woman it's all in her do you think he was (laughs) implying that she's some sort of alien or other creature now that would be interesting talks about how each each man sees her in a different way Yes. And like her actual form seems to change depending on who's viewing her. Well, it certainly would make sense, say, from a Star Trek point of view. We've got Mm -hmm. that, you know, salt beast. Yeah. Um, However, I think it goes more to the theme of the book, which is myth making. The fact that if she is rumored to be the most beautiful woman in the world, then she has to be the most beautiful woman in the world to everyone who sees her. Everyone is going to have a different concept of that. So naturally, she is going to be different depending. And we're talking about, you know, Greek prehistory, a time of miracles, and a time of gods walking among yeah, us. Yeah, um, and... when they're describing the Trojans at home, it says there was even a picture of Helen's father. A swan. <laughs> a swan, <laughs> if you remember. Yes. 
which she must have brought with her from Sparta. That's right. <laughs> so if if her father was a swan, there's already kind of this mysticism, oh, this magical. Yes. Uh, well, that was Zeus. About that her. was Zeus and swan form. Exactly. Wasn't it? Yeah. So she's the daughter <laughs> yes. of a god. So she has some kind of ability to attract people, right? Um, which is otherworldly. To this kind of amusing parallelism where Achilles is talking about how he thinks the doctor is Zeus. He says, to Europa, you appeared as a bull. To Leda, a swan. To me, you came in the guise of an old beggar. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I beg really, you're going to be seduced by an old beggar? <laughs> but he also talked about, he didn't go back and forth between this sort of magicalized version and talking about how we wouldn't consider Troy very impressive, even a few years later, because our scientific understanding has expanded at that time we thought the world was a small flat disc on an right. elephant on a turtle but now we know it's a larger flat disc floating down a river <laughs> yes <laughs> exactly we talked about how troy wouldn't be considered impressive now it seems to go back and forth between a sort of a realism and air quotes don't work on a podcast do they no they i'm don't. doing air quotes <laughs> quote realism in quote and then this sort of mystical thing of a photo of my dad as, as a swan on the wall yeah. right that she brought from Sparta. With her. That she brought so from it's, Sparta mm-hmm. with her because um, she was packing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and and like you said, I feel like it goes in kind of with the idea of the myth makers. It's like what's real, what's fiction, where mm. are the lines blur. Exactly. Um, is this really mm. just Homer in the end, like coming up with this stuff? Yes, and that mm. fact that Homer Homer just seems to know more than anybody else. He even makes a South Pacific reference at the beginning of chapter 26. I missed that. Oh, I adore him for this. Um, both Homer and uh, Cotton. I'll read it to you. Yeah, I know. I'll, I'll have to show you that interview at some point because it's really just, you know, you can imagine him having a bourbon in one hand with that cigarette and saying, oh, yes, darling, writing for Doctor <laughs> Who is just such a drag. Um, <clears throat> where is it? When he catches her eye. Then the poor, tortured child, so happy a moment ago, but now torn by divided loyalty, seemed to come to a decision, and not before time. She looked across the crowded room that disenchanted evening and caught my remaining eye. (laughs) (laughs) That disenchanted evening. I missed that. That disenchanted evening. And I was like, oh my god, I love this book to bits. Which was part of the reason why I wanted us to have an extra week with it. Yeah. And partially because I was, you know, busy as hell, but I was also taking yeah. my time with it and just drinking in the loveliness that is Cotton's prose. Can you tell that I'm probably going to give this a high uh, rating at some point? I think I might. Point five stars. Point <laughs> <laughs> five stars. Integer no, point no. five. Well, zero than anything. Right. Oh, and I love the whole thing of you will be you will be executed as a murderess and a witch. And the spy. Well, it's one of them. Just anyway. one of them. You don't want to overdo things. <laughs> I finally found the part about Homer being old, the opening line. Yes. So it should have been easier to find. Uh, look over here under the olive trees. That's right, by the pile of broken stones and the cracked statues of old gods. What do you see? Why, nothing but an old man sitting in the autumn sunshine and dreaming and remembering. That is what old men do, having nothing better to occupy their time. And since that is what I have become, that is why I do it. And at first I thought it was going to be the Doctor, and of course it turns out to be Homer, and I did not see it coming at the, the end. He would have been narrating the whole story yes. back to the Doctor. Back to the Doctor. And I think it's the second Doctor. Mm. Yeah. Because they describe him as having a frock coat. Um, talk the, about The other times he's talked about having seen the Doctor, are those other official stories in canon? No, no. Okay. None of them. None of them at all. 
And especially the way that doctor speaks, that's not Hartnell. Hmm. That's not Hartnell. It cannot be Hartnell. Okay. I must say, I was glad to get out of that horse. The nastiest contraption I've ever had the misfortune to travel in. And that's saying something that sounds like Troughton. So I should help a distinguished author like you. And that he asks about Vicky. Ah, yes, I suppose she would be by now. Should have stayed with me, you know. Then she'd still have been 18. But not in love. But well, not yeah, in it's love. It's unfortunate like she's middle-aged. Well, you know, as you pointed out on the very first page, the alternative to being older is being dead. So maybe yes. Vicky should get that as well. Oh, and that's... Here's the... You know, yes. <laughs> and here's the other thing. Because he was an old man, too, though not as old as Homer. Hmm. Which could be Hartnell. Or it could be Trump. Could very well be. Yeah. Um, it's a lovely coda. I love the way yeah. this book is constructed. I just adore it. Especially since so many of these books tend to have a strong opening 20 to 50 pages of world building and then turn into just mechanical plot device. Yeah. yeah. And then maybe a nice kiss at the end, last half page. But this one never really descended into just a recounting of events and and reading this again i feel like homer saying middle-aged i'm afraid it's not really like i'm sorry Mm. she's old now it's more like that's how much time has passed Mm. here since you have visited me even though they've had other things happen yeah Um, homer's saying she's aged now you've been gone Mm. in this time for i didn't think about that you've missed her life right right you spent hardly any time with her and now she's you know 30 years older so. What is really lovely is the fact that Maureen O'Brien has done audio drama since mm-hmm. in the character mm-hmm. of Vicky. And even though they still haven't gotten a, a, a voice actor who can quite do Hartnell, so they haven't done full mm-hmm. cast audio dramas, she has joined Peter Purvis in doing these uh, dramas. She still sounds like an 18 year old. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing God, that you can get this woman, I think she's in her 70s, I'm not sure. I hope, I hope you don't hear this, Ms. O'Brien, because I love you. But, um, <laughs> yeah, she's she's getting on, but when she does Vicky, she gets this brightness of tone mm. in her voice, and it's like, this is just mm. lovely. Yeah. And, and there's one after this story of Vicky apparently gets, um, gets followed around by some alien entity and has to deal with it, mm. and it's become her, her companion... So okay. they're trapped with one another, but it's actually a quite lovely little story. Anyway, um, I want to close this out by asking you, favorite lines? I know it's going to be difficult to stop. I have, I have lots of things highlighted. Please um, tell us some of them. So we already talked about this, but in uh, chapter 27, Armageddon and after, um, <laughs> Homer is talking to Achilles and he says, he didn't bother with blank verse for me, you notice. <laughs> oh no, they saved that sort of courtesy for each other. Yes. The class thing, really, I take it. It's the sort of slight which hurts. Um, yeah, that, that kind of thing was funny. Um, uh, poor fools, little did they know that Zeus was about to slip on the staccato tomato. Yes. <laughs> it's like, okay, there you go. Um, we already talked about this one as well. By Zeus, you're making me as nervous as a bacchanot or... Bacca- Bacante? Is it Bacchanate? Bacchanate. There's, 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 there's a... There's a... No, there's a... It's a spelling error. Oh, there's a spelling uh, error. A bacchanate at her first orgy. <laughs> her first orgy. Um, when they're talking about 
the celebration they're having, I liked the line, even the hips of the dancing girls bumped and ground to a standstill. <laughs> yes. I can just, like, like a locomotive just, like, yes. slowing down. Just, like... And in that same scene, uh, it's chapter 20, um, Paris says something uh, is described as having a flaccid facade. Yes. <laughs> that was a good one. And then something that he says, he's, uh, Homer said, well, that went down, like, Ipecacuana after Saga. Oh, did I hit Google hard then? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So after did I. what? After what? Um, Cressida, the Wonder Girl, who tells your fortune, speaks your weight, and halves the housework was responsible. <laughs> yes. um, you know, call her out. She did it. Um, whenever um, Troilus and uh, Vicky getting together, whatever, uh, they're talking about how old they are. They both decided that they would be 18 on their next birthday. And the earth-shattering coincidence of this seemed to take their minds off everything else for the time being. <laughs> they chattered away to each other for a couple of budgerigars who have been at the cuttlefish a bit. <laughs> Stephen, Stephen and I looked at each other and shrugged. Youth. Yeah. Youth. <laughs> quite nauseating. Um, and so the, many so The many best thing since Prometheus invented external combustion. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Odysseus says uh, there's a lot of amusing stuff about um, how Achilles is just really superstitious compared to the rest of them. Yes. And Odysseus refers to, oh, that muscle-bound bodybuilding narcissus fears his shadow in the sunshine <laughs> will not so much as comb his hair until he until he reads the day's augering. <laughs> and then Achilles announces to Agamemnon, Father Zeus appeared before me. And Agamemnon says, he's been listening to too much propaganda. <laughs> um... Whenever uh, Homer comes upon Odysseus, the doctor, um, to tell them about the plan, uh, no, I was relying on the element of surprise, you see, the theory being that if you don't give anyone else a chance to say anything, there's not a lot they can do about it till you finish. (laughs) I've often noticed that chaps don't seem able to kill other chaps to their faces until they've told them that that's what they're going to do. A sort of convention, I suppose. And you know, it more or less worked because Odysseus didn't actually kill me. He put on my right eye with a marlin spike instead. <laughs> when he's crossing the plane, he says, I was keeping a weather eye open, of course, for embattled heroes blaring iambics at each other. <laughs> um, the line about what we writers really need is absolutely watertight copyright laws, <laughs> but I don't s- suppose we'll ever get them. Oh, yeah. Uh, so many good little... Um, um, Cotton has an amazing gift for alliteration when he says that the doctor was lifted aloft by a bunch of tattooed ruffians like a teetotum in the tantrum. When he is below uh, decks of Odysseus's ship, he says, To add to my pleasure, I was covered with fish scales and crab legs and other marine bric-a-brac for more or less of a no- more or less noisome nature. And I suppose I should mention in passing that it was the most excruciating pain I had ever known or had believed was generally available outside the nethermost circle of Hades. <laughs> Also, multiple times I have just uh, highlighted uh, Cassandra screaming, Kill her! Kill both of them! Kill! 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 It's just, she's just like screaming, Death to them! Death! Yes. Death! Listen to me! Um, oh, speaking, more. speaking of which, when um, Odysseus um, threatens to thr- uh, catapult the doctor over the wall, <laughs> the doctor says that I should be killed. Well, you must do as you think best. <laughs> Once fate is really on its way with the captions rolling, there's nothing anyone can do to stop it, in my experience. <laughs> yes. There are explosive fricatives there. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> it, it is... It is remarkable. Yeah. Definitely that. 
Shall we do the Goodreads thing? Not by all means. Okay. Yeah. As we always do, let's go to Goodreads. Oh, God damn it. As, gods damn it, sorry, <laughs> Zeus and all. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with their own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, read the book, write a review, then write a comment somewhere letting us know you did so we can read it. But a so comment that. other than, dang it, I already have all the Target books. Yeah, exactly, because we hear com- that new material. all the fucking time. <laughs> All right. Who knew it was as widespread as Harry Potter and the Bible? Oh my god, I know. <laughs> More so, even. Um, the average rating for this story out of five stars is 3.63. That seems low relative to the others we've discussed. Isn't it? It's, how much better it is. It's higher than the last couple ones, obviously. But wow. it's still kind of right in the middle. Yeah, it really ish. is. And I think it's because of the weird averaging. Hmm. Shane McKenzie gives it five stars. And he says, some may reject Doctor Who's comedy, but to those critics I remind them that Doctor Who has never shied away from any genre. In their fearlessness to touch on anything and everything, they have never failed to commit to the genre they are testing. In this earnest effort, I am always willing to travel with the whims of the different authors who have written for Doctor Who. Donald Carton here did a conceptual story that was successfully interesting, thematic, and funny, all caps. All told from the perspective of Homer, the Mythmakers brings the Doctor into the center of the story of the Iliad. Again and again, I giggled at the story's framing and one-liners. I recommend this novel because it is both concise and successfully accomplishes its goals. This is a truly, this is truly a dream come true kind of time travel story that can only be done best within the Who universe. We want what he's smoking. Yes, we do. It was very good. A very good book. I agree. Sarah Samus gives it only four stars and says, I guess it falls under the historical and educational bit of Doctor Who, but not the bug-eyed monster bit. The book is fortunately very short. It started out fun, but it quickly started to drag with the narrator who was supposedly Homer, but didn't sound anything like Homer the Poet. You don't know what Homer the Poet sounded like? I know. He might have been translations. He might have been Homer Simpson if Homer were British. I I think they were just trying to get that joke in. Mm. The story is told from Homer's point of view as another of his epic, the Hooiad, I guess. Ah. I kind of like that. But it's (laughs) unfortunately nowhere near as well written as either the Iliad or the Odyssey. Of course it's not. (laughs) No shit, Sherlock. I mean, I'm thinking back to what you were saying. In all of literature, it's five stars. It's like, that's a little bit high. Right. There's so many modern Britishisms in Homer's story that it's impossible to believe he would be the one telling the story. That's the joke. Yes, that's the joke. Or that his Greek audience would understand a tenth of what he was saying. I wish that Cotton had chosen to use an unnamed narrator if he was so set on using a chit-chatty tone. Just another ancient poet who happened to be in the vicinity at that time and might write about it later. (laughs) I guess. And finally, Christian Petrie gives it just one star. Saying, during the course of rereading the Doctor Who books I own, this is the first one that I felt like skipping after starting it. First, I'm not a fan of the first person narrative. Well, there you go. So when I encounter a book written in the first person, I do become hesitant. With this book, it was bad. I do give Donald Cotton credit for trying something. In my opinion, though, it does not work. He has Homer as the narrator. This leads to Homer talking more about other things than the Doctor. His opinion on things that distracts from the story. The other part is because it's based on the show. The main characters are not in the same area, so to tell the story, he has Homer Homer moving from one camp to the other. This gets tedious. Well, you talked about that, too. It didn't really bother me 
Yeah, I mean, close it's close to the original. People are always hanging out on the plane to yeah. the point where you're expecting them to be written up for loitering on the plane. <laughs> they probably are and shouting iambic pentameter at each other. Yes, repeating <laughs> iambic things. pentameter. This also limits things to what Homer is seeing, hearing, which could have led to other parts of the show being left out. It doesn't. Don't worry. If you read in between the lines, you can get a feel for this lost story of Doctor Who. You don't have to read between the lines. You get the whole thing. There's very little that's changed. In fact, did you all hear me say in the televised version? Mm. Oh, yeah, usually I'm doing that all the time. Right Our harshest reviews today are saved for the Goodreads reviewers. Oh yeah, that's for damn true. The humor that was probably used in the dialogue of the story does shine... Th probably. It makes me wonder what the story was actually like. Ooh, get him off the stage! Yeah, go listen to it, you, you fumbling, foul fiend. <laughs> uh, even though it was I can't alliterate like Cotton can <laughs> I, even though I just did even though it was an attempt to alter the writing of a Doctor Who story to give it a new spin it is a shame the novel takes the form it does perhaps it was done slightly different it would have made been made more enjoyable or at least bearable oh come on some people are just there's no pleasing some people I don't... you just I have to like put their eyes out failed to bring that one home <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Come All right. on. So I'm going to ask your opinions uh, out of five stars. Uh, Allison, we haven't gone first with you in a while, so let's start with you. I'm thinking about going for broke with a single reservation. I enjoyed it so much, and yet everyone on this panel was at one point lightly dehumanized during the story, <laughs> which is the only thing that knocks off from just a little light dehumanization, not full on, you know. if you will, for yeah. the last two or three or eight. Um, it keeps us on our toes. Yeah, it does. Tell, I'm going to give it a four, and that is the most wow, wildly that's... extravagant I have ever been. I was going to say, that's high for you. Yeah. So that's... Dear God, woman, what are you smoking? To hell with Jane Eyre and Ecclesiastes. It's <laughs> getting a four. Yes! <laughs> but I, I, I do admit, oh, that, like I said, I am exactly the target audience for this, and that is not at all objective. He just scratches me where I itch. This is yeah. right in your wheelhouse, then. And, and yeah. Two or three different ways, yes. Both his, <laughs> well, both his, his form of humor writing and... Me being one of those people anxious to show off, I had the classical education, and having always weirdly been a lot more interested in the Iliad than the Odyssey, because I don't like Odysseus. I actually like the way he portrays him here. Oh, yeah. And preferring the story of the Odyssey and kind of interest, this interesting idea of how the gods are not controlling things. Hmm. That it, it did appeal to me very specifically. Okay. Dalton? Um, in schooling, somehow I missed reading the Iliad. I never read it in school, so... Mm -hmm. Anything that I knew about the Trojan War was clearly just from a historical perspective, not from like a literary perspective. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm I really enjoyed this. I'm gonna go four point five. Um, it was funny. It was an easy read. That's the first time I've said that tonight. Um, <laughs> on the beach. On the beach. On um, the beach. But no, I feel like the the device of having Homer be the narrator did not take away from that at all. If anything, it helped just like bring you into the world a little more. Um, because usually we are, we are the person sitting on the plane watching everything happen. Yeah. And now we're sitting along with someone else eating popcorn uh -huh. and just like enjoying it. So um, yeah, it was funny and there was action and there was a little bit of romance, which I usually don't care about. Um, I was kind of sad to see Vicky go out like this, yeah. but she didn't die. No. So there's at least yeah. that. Um, Didn't run off the Tory. There's that. Right. Um, and the the romance seemed at least kind of 
I don't know. It didn't seem forced like before where uh, Barbara and Ian seemed kind of uncharacteristic to me hmm. until that final story the change. when they caught when they finally came together it felt more right there hmm. um but yeah vicky and troilus didn't seem as like no way vicky would never be with him she's like you know they were young so yeah 4.5 i i really enjoyed it um it's fun it's Great. fun book okay as for me i i so adore this book I love this book. I can forgive it, even those few flaws that I see in it, such as the obvious back and forth the Cotton has Homer doing, Achilles' lisp, which is even hard for me to say because apparently I have one. Um, the and you know his general attitude towards women. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like ugh. it's not the Crusaders. It's not doing that. Thank God, mm. we don't have any of that going on. It is delightful. From the alliteration, to the storytelling, to the world building, to the fact that um, I also didn't read the Iliad uh, when I was in school. Yeah. I, don't think I, I, I don't think I have now, for that matter. And in fact, most of what I know about the Trojan War comes from this. Yeah. And it seems pretty damn accurate. I'd prefer this version of the Trojan War probably <laughs> to uh, Homer's own version of it. Well, this there are is a lot Homer's fewer version. sex lives. Yeah, true. Exactly. And we don't need sex slaves in Doctor <laughs> Who. We're not in the new series yet. Yeah. So I'm probably going to shock people with this one. This is 4.75 for me. The highest score I've ever given for a Doctor Who book was a 5, and that was Doctor Who and the Daleks. Mm. That was a perfect 5. This one, it's not perfect. It comes really close, and if it weren't for those flaws, this would just be perfection. I wish every Doctor Who book could be like this. Mm. I really do. So, thank you guys. Yeah. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, since we're doing Dalek's Master Plan for our single episode in November, we're going to make it up to you with our first Halloween special. You'll be getting a <laughs> very, so very... We didn't even script that. That wasn't planned. That wasn't planned at all. <laughs> we just suck at that. We just thing. liked it. <laughs> you'll, be getting, you'll be getting both a trick and a treat out of this one. Some of you who uh, follow us on Facebook already know what we're doing. Others do not, such as our panelists. <laughs> they are actually in the dark about this, and I'll tell them about it after we go off the air. But come back in a couple of weeks to find out their reactions to this lovely trick and treat that we're all going to get. Do we need to tell the police about this trick and treat ahead of time? Yes, we do. The in, yes, we do. In the <laughs> meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club. Book, yeah, fuck. Doctor Who Target Book Oh my god, you know what it is. The Just go. <laughs> Just go. I'm not going to say it again. Just go. I've done this for 20 episodes now. Just go. You can also visit our eternally pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. I am the only one that visits it. I know it's pristine because I go to visit it. Uh, watch our videos of our first 12 episodes. Give us a thumbs up or comment on YouTube. Uh, Emperor Dal uh, forward slash user forward slash Emperor Daleks forward slash video. Follow us on Twitter at DWTargetBC. Subscribe up to us via the podcast of your choice. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn. We are no longer on Podbean. No. Just so you know. Podbean is lost. Podbean is dead to us for the moment. 
but that's fine. If you become a patron for us, though, they may revive. They may come back to life. If all else fails you, email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. mentioning my pee-pee dance on air. Oh no, sorry about that. <laughs> well, you know, I was recording when he said that. Oh yeah.